Welcome back. Um, we have uh, rearranged the chairs here on the stage, and hopefully you have found uh, either your chair or someone else's uh, from before the break. I wanted to, <clears throat> before I introduce our speakers today, I wanted to read a few brief passages from a recent issue of The Economist magazine, which I think helps to set the context uh, for the last five years and for today. On the morning of September 12, 2001, Americans woke up to a changed country. They had seen the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center reduced to rubble, the Pentagon aflame, and a field in Pennsylvania transformed into a graveyard. Almost 3,000 people had been killed and twice as many injured in the bloodiest day on American soil since the Battle of Antietam in 1862. The attacks brought an end to the holiday from history that followed the fall of the Soviet Union. They also brought an abrupt end to America's sense of invulnerability. For all its military might and oceanic moats, the country was wide open to attack from fanatics living in caves in Afghanistan. On September 11th, Mr. Bush concluded that America was at war. That day, too, he stated that he would make no distinction between terrorists and those who harbored them. And America would not simply treat symptoms, it would tackle the causes of Islamic terrorism. The doctrine drew on two contradictory beliefs, that America was mighty enough to reorder the world and that it was vulnerable to still worse attacks. And as I say, I think these passages set a useful context for this morning's discussion. We are mighty, yet we are vulnerable. At least that was the sense on September 12th. How have these sentiments changed over the past five years, and how might they change further over the next five or ten or 15 years. Before I introduce our panel, uh, I wanted to take just a minute to acknowledge some of the work of my colleagues, uh, recent work of my colleagues here at Cato, several of whom have, have really worked uh, yeoman's work on issues of, of civil liberties and counterterrorism, including Robert Levy, who's testified and written on the National Security Agency's surveillance program, Jim Harper, who explores how a free society balances privacy concerns with effective strategies for combating terrorism, Gene Healy, who's done uh, terrific work on the expansion of executive power since 9-11. And I also I'll make a special note uh, for Tim Lynch, who's the director of Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Tim co-authored with Gene Healy the paper Power Surge, the constitutional record of George W. Bush, published earlier this year. And he has just published, just two days ago, uh, the paper Double Speak and the War on Terrorism, a concise and absolutely first-rate study of how language has been used and abused since 9-11. I recommend it to you all. It's available outside, uh, and I, I do recommend it. Today's panel is tasked with exploring both the conduct of the U.S. war on terrorism since 9-11 and to suggest some steps for fighting terrorism in the months and years ahead. You already know Professor Robert Pape. Thank you, Dr. Pape, for your presentation today. I'm sure there will be some further discussion of your work from the panel discussion and in the audience Q&A. I want to introduce our other distinguished panelists. First, Dana Priest covers the intelligence world and national security issues for the Washington Post. In April 2006, Priest was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Beat Reporting for her work covering U.S. intelligence agencies. Copies of these articles are available as handout outside. Ms. Priest was also a finalist for the Pulitzer in a second category in national reporting as part of the Post team that investigated abuses in Iraq's Abu Ghraib prison. In 2004, her book, The Mission, Waging War and Keeping Peace with America's Military was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in general nonfiction. Priest has worked for the Post for 19 years. She's written extensively about intelligence lapses before the attacks of September 11th, about the failure of pre-war intelligence in Iraq, 
about the covert war against suspected terrorists and, of course, the CIA's previously secret detention facilities, which we already mentioned. I read Dana's articles when these were first published, of course, and, and then I read them again uh, over the last few days, and they provide an invaluable picture into the United States' counterterrorism efforts since 9-11. Uh, just this past Wednesday, President Bush publicly acknowledged for the first time the existence of the CIA's so-called black sites. Uh, according to senior administration officials quoted in this morning's post, the revelations of the secret CIA prisons marked a turning point in the internal debates raging within the Bush administration over the morality and the practicality of the detainee policy. Uh, before moving to the intelligence beat, uh, Dana was uh, the post-Pentagon correspondent and then wrote about the military as an investigative reporter. She's traveled widely with the U.S. military uh, all over the world, Asia, Africa, and South America, and reported from Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, and Kosovo. She holds a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Next to speak will be Andrew Kohut, director of the Pew Research Center for the People and the Press. Kohut comments frequently on the meaning and interpretation of public opinion polls. In recent national elections, he served as a public opinion consultant and analyst for National Public Radio. He appears on television news programs, including the News Hour with Jim Lehrer. He's written widely about public opinion for leading newspapers and magazines. And uh, he's co-authored four books, including most recently, America Against the World, How We Are Different and Why We Are Disliked, with Bruce Stokes. Uh, he, before uh, uh, his work with the Pew Research Center, he was president of the Gallup Organization from 1979 to 1989. In 1989, he founded Princeton Survey Research Associates, an, uh, an attitude and opinion research firm specializing in media politics and public policy studies. He was the founding director of surveys for the Times Mirror Center from 1990 to 1992 and was named its director in 1993. Uh, he was president of American Association of Public Opinion Research and uh, of the National Council of Public Polls. He's a member of the Market Research Council and the F Council on Foreign Relations. He received his A.B. degree from Seton Hall University in 1964 and studied graduate sociology at Rutgers uh, the State University from 1964 to 1966. Next is Flint Leverett, senior, senior fellow and director of the Global Energy Initiative in the American Strategy Program at the New America Foundation. Most recently, Dr. Leverett was a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Sabin Center for Middle East Policy. Prior to that, he had a distinguished career in governor, government, serving as senior director for Middle East Affairs on the National Security Council, Middle East expert on the security on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, and senior analyst at the CIA. He's the author of Inheriting Syria, Bashar's Trial by Fire, a study of politics and policymaking in Syria that also, recommend, that also offers recommendations for U.S. policy toward this critical country. He's published many articles on strategic implications of the energy market, uh, about China's energy-driven engagement in the Middle East, Middle Eastern regional security, uh, and other issues in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Los Angeles Times, and a number of other publications. He is also the author of an outstanding cover story uh, in this month's American Prospect, The War Makers, uh, which uh, is also available outside the auditorium. In addition to his public work, Dr. Levitt has appeared on a wide range of news and public affairs programs, including CNN, C-SPAN, PBS, and uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He holds a Ph.D. in politics from Princeton University and is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Next is Rand Beers, currently the president of the National Security Network, a network of experts seeking to foster discussion of progressive national security ideas around the country. He's also an adjunct lecturer on terrorism at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. 
He most recently worked as the National Security Advisor for the Kerry Edwards Campaign. He began his career as a Marine officer and rifle company commander in, in Vietnam, 1964 to 1968. He entered the Foreign Service in 1971 and transferred to the Civil Service in 1983. During his career, he served in the State Department's Bureau of Political and Military Affairs as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regional Affairs, focusing on the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. He was Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, 1998 to 2002. He also served in four positions on the NSC staff at the White House during four administrations. His functions included Director for Counterterrorism and Counter-Narcotics, Director for Peacekeeping, and Senior Director for Intelligence Programs. His final government position was Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Combating Terrorists on the NF Terrorism on the NSC staff from 2002 to 2003. He resigned in March 2003 and retired in April before joining the Kerry campaign in May 2003. And with that, Dana Priest. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad to be here. It's my first time at Cato to speak, although I love their publications. And um, for some reason, I thought I'd have a little time to do this because journalists have nothing to do in the run-up to 9-11. <laughs> so my notes are a little scattered. Uh, I thought I would take you inside um, inside the government's um, learning curve, if you will, on, on terrorism, and particularly the CIA. I could talk about um, special ops, too, but really what I've covered mainly for the last several years is the CIA's efforts on counterterrorism. And as uh, you may or may not know, um, even though they were on to bin Laden and trying to, to hunt him and, and the al-Qaeda network, they really <clears throat> couldn't even conceive of the sort of skills and legal authorities and things they would need when it finally happened. And when it did, uh, scurried quite um, quickly, but with um, and with great effort to try to put in place a new a new system that would um, answer the most basic question: Well, what do we do with someone? When we, how do we catch someone, and then what do we do with them once we have them, and how are we going to get information from them? Things that uh, are basic, um, basic issues, but were not really anything anybody thought deeply about um, before that. And so, uh, on September 12th, when these things became an issue, and certainly in the months after that, when the initial Afghan campaign uh, was underway, and they had individuals in their control who they really thought knew about the other plots, or potentially other plots, the issue, the tough issue started to come up right away, which is, where do we put these people? And and if you thought that maybe they had uh, the next plot in their mind, um, or on paper somewhere, how far could you go? And who was even going to go that far with them? Because the CIA wasn't in the interrogation business uh, on September 12th, and they actually didn't have interrogators. They had they put quickly put together teams of polygraph uh, polygraphers and uh, psychiatrists who did the initial uh, interrogation of high-value targets, a name that came about and took on a legal meaning. Uh, Within months, and certainly over the next year or so, a whole new legal, almost extrajudicial regime was built. And this is the one we know a lot more about now because we've all, well, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it was, but it required um, new authorities, it required a presidential finding, it required memos to the field that tried to outline, you know, how far you could go, where you could put people. And um, and where you would do that, which required a whole new set 
of much deeper relationships with uh, foreign intelligence services, some of whom uh, some of whom the U.S. government writ large would like to have nothing to do with before 9-11, but now found that uh, they really needed to, um, to develop these relationships. So aside from the logistics of, uh, of how you capture people, of what you do with them, um, where you put them, uh, which were enormous issues, the question also came up, how, how can we develop uh, better ties with the foreign partners? And so, of course, the CIA had always had uh, foreign liaison service relationships. That goes without saying. But under Tenet, I think he was particularly good at this, um, they realized right away that the best, their best weapon in, or in, in their struggle to find uh, terrorists were their foreign partners. So they set about uh, trying to do that created um, what was called the counterintelligence uh, oh, what is it called, the CTICs the Joint Operations Centers and and um, spent a lot of money trying to set those up, um, sent people into the field to try to, and George Tenet in particular among them hosted a lot of foreign uh, intelligence leaders and the whole effort here was to get people um, working side by side with CIA, who they sent out into the field to do that. In certain places, they created physical sites in which um, CIA could go out and vet uh, vet people from foreign services. Uh, because of course, one problem was how could you maintain operational security? Uh, and they created uh, two more than two dozen of these around the world in some of the countries that you would imagine, like Saudi Arabia. Um, Jordan, which already had, of course, a very deep relationship, uh, Indonesia, Yemen. And uh, meanwhile, while this is going on, uh, there is the military campaign, and, you, and most Americans probably focus on that as the main uh, element of counterterrorism. But really, when you look at the, the high-value targets that have been captured and the 75% of the al-Qaeda network that's been dismantled, it's largely been dismantled by the CIA in, in partnership with their foreign allies. And I would say the, the vast majority of the people who have been identified and, and actually apprehended have been apprehended by foreign allies. So that relationship is hugely important. My favorite, my favorite relationship in this is, is, is the U.S.-French relationship because... Um, at the same time that the French were getting bashed about the head by, by Don Rumsfeld for not wanting to join the uh, Iraq buildup, um, it turns out that the French relationship was among the most productive of any uh, in Europe or around the world. And that, if you, if you look, step back for a minute and, and say, well, why is that? It's very logical. The French had set up French had been victims of terrorism for decades, and they had already set up counterterrorism courts that had special authorities that American courts don't have, and that many of the Europe, their European um, countries did not have. And they worked very closely with the French to apprehend um, terrorists in Europe. But even more interesting than that, the French agreed to sponsor what is, I think, still the, the one and only multi national uh, counterterrorism base. It's in Paris. It's largely funded by the, U by the CIA, headed by a, f uh, a former French general. And one reason they did this was because the Germans had rules that wouldn't allow the, Germish, the, the two German uh, main uh, 
law enforcement agencies to share information with one another, and they had to find a workaround to that because there were a lot of German, a lot of people who were suspect in Germany, obviously, the Hamburg cell. So the Germans couldn't share it directly with one another, but they could share it with the Alliance base based in Paris, and through them, um, they could um, do something about uh, about it. And ended up, I wrote a story, ended up uh, arresting, actually uh, setting up uh, a man named Christian Gargonsky, who's turned out to be one of the most important terrorists in Europe, um, they lured him from Saudi Arabia where he had been studying for half a year, um, set him up on an airplane. Unbeknownst to him, there was a CIA person and a Saudi intelligence person, and they landed in the who should be waiting for him on the tarmac but the French and the American station chief, and off he went and remains today. So that's just one uh, one area of cooperation that's um, you know nothing like you would see above the surface, but this was happening below the surface. Within the CIA, there was a huge power shift away from the regional divisions where uh, if you were a, an upper management person, that's where you went, and much, m- many of the decisions were made to this counterterrorism center, which was uh, not a center that had was the focus of, any, of a lot of uh, prestige beforehand, but it became the place to be, and it organized many of the apprehensions and even some of the most controversial ones, like Khalid Masri, the naturalized uh, German citizen who was stopped in Macedonia and held for a long time without much, really without a lot of reason. Um, the One other thing I wanted to mention before we moved on was, um, you know, m- all of this was um, consciously done in secrecy. And obviously, a lot of those operations, it's, it's obvious why that's so. But... Um, but I would argue that, uh, and as a journalist, you wouldn't be surprised that I would argue this, <laughs> that um, the extent of the, the secrecy, uh, you know, there's been a backlash to that, not just among the press, but uh, among the public, and that the government fundamentally didn't really realize, and I'm not sure still today does, how hard it is to keep a secret these days, and I'm not talking about people within the government who might help reporters, but um, here's my favorite example. You know the the story about renditions and how what do you do with someone who you capture in Indonesia who's Yemeni and you want him to be put away because you think he really is a bad guy but there's no judicial system to try him. Um, And um, what you do if you're the CIA now is you help fly him to Yemen or to some other prison. Uh, Jordan hosts them, uh, Morocco, Algeria I believe. But you have to do it all in secret. So this is what happened, and this is how we got on to the initial idea that the CIA had this uh, fleet of aircraft that were flying people like this around and then literally disappearing them in the sense that they were nowhere to be found and they were on nobody's register. We got on to the notion by a reporter in Indonesia, one of our guys who... Um, who was talking to some airplane air, airport workers who had told him about um, a, a mysterious plane that was on the runway and a guy in shackles and this was about 2.40 a.m. And, um, and that was reported. The tail number was reported, not by us, but by an Indonesian newspaper. And it looked, it just looked very suspicious. Well, 
That was at 2.40 a.m. By 7.54 p.m. that same day, the bloggers were at it. They had picked up, the ones that are reading Phibus in the international press, they had picked this up, and within 13 minutes of, it was on this uh, blog whose name I can't remember, but within 13 minutes of being posted, you had this exchange. This is kind of like Air America. Uh, <laughs> and then you had some guy who, you know, put in the address of the tail number and found Premier Executive Transport Service. Boy, that sounds like a cover name. And then, of course, we come into it using our computers. I went up to, to Boston and pulled some public available records, and the thing gets, you know, there are dead-end trails all over the place, and the lights are going off, and within um, a month because it did take us a while to do this using publicly available records we uh, discovered a whole series of post office boxes in northern Virginia and among those post office boxes there were 235 names of people who were supposed to be in their early 40s or, or to early 50s and when you looked into their bios, which again we can we can do on publicly available records, they all got their social security numbers in 2002, and none of them had ever lived anywhere. <laughs> so we took this schema to the to the CIA when we were gonna we were trying to figure out what kind of story we would write and how much we'd actually put in the newspaper, and we didn't put the post office boxes, and we put none of the names in the paper. Uh, we came to them with this flow chart saying, look what we found. And the answer and expecting, as we do because we have a dialogue with the government we, when we find uh, sensitive things, expecting some kind of dialogue. Well, you know, this, this part of it we really don't want you to publish because <coughs> of X, Y, and Z. Instead, we just got a, a no comment, we can't help you. And because I had sources telling me what this all amounted to, we made the decision. We could make. We had to make the decision all on our own. What was uh, too sensitive to publish, and and what was important to publish. So, I wind up by saying, uh, all along the way, in trying to describe these relationships, it never seemed to me that the that the secrecy and the unconventional legal interpretations were sustainable, and that if you were in a real a fight that would take you 50 years, as some people are describing it, you needed to have a system that was sustainable, which means you needed to have political buy-in and some debate on what it was you were doing. And I think what the president did the other day in acknowledging this and throwing it back to Congress a body who was never into debating this, no matter what they say, because <laughs> um, they're hard questions. Now you will get, to a certain point, a debate. And hopefully we will, as a country, get to a point where we've created a system that we can uh, support and will not be uh, to, you know, subject to the whims of the next uh, political group that is in power. So thank you. Thank you, Dana. Andy? Uh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here, and I think uh, Dana's comment about political buy-in is my cue to talk about uh, public opinion and how the war on terror is going with the public. Uh, I'm going to talk about the American public. Uh, I could talk about uh, the world public and the 50 nations survey, the 50 countries in which we've done surveys and 110,000 interviews. But I only have 12 minutes to discuss hits and misses, and uh, I think I would spend most of that 12 minutes, or all of that 12 minutes, and then some, talking about uh, global opinion about the war on terrorism. 
But let's focus on the United States and on the American public. And I think that if the objective uh, was to have a confident united public that was willing and disposed to take an assertive posture with respect to to the war on terrorism, uh, five years later, uh, we're not doing so well. Uh, there's been a whole round of surveys conducted uh, now on the fifth anniversary of the September 11th attacks, all asking similar questions. And, th- and they mostly show uh, that the public believes that the ability of the terrorists to attack us uh, was at least as gra- is at least as greater or greater than it was uh, on September 11th. 62% in our poll, similar numbers in other surveys. Just one in three in our survey say we're safer today than we were uh, before September 11th. Uh, Most uh, think that the administration has made some progress on dealing with terrorism, according to the New York Times CBS poll. It still is the the Bush administration's strongest suit, its its best card, its best evaluation. Uh, But only 13 percent think they've made a great deal of progress in dealing with terrorism. Um, While overall concern about terrorism is about as great as it was in the weeks and months following uh, the war on uh, the September 11th attacks, uh, the public has turned away, what we see is the public has turned away very dramatically from what its initial, initial instincts and attitudes were right after those attacks. First, what we saw in October and November and of, of 2001 and even into 2002 was a spike, an increase in internationalism. Uh, it, we saw it both in our long-term indicators and we saw in a, a specific question that we did with the Council on Foreign Relations in October of 2001, 62% said the best way to uh, prevent terrorism in the future is for the United States to play an active role in world affairs. That's a remarkable response from this, this public, which is, has a very soft Uh, on internationalism characteristically. But over the course of these five years, we've seen those numbers reverse themselves. The long-term indicators that that, uh, Gallup and Pew have been tracking since 1960s showed a spike in uh, isolationism in 2004 that was comparable, or 2005, I'm sorry, that was comparable to what we saw in the mid-1970s after the war in Vietnam and in the mid-1990s when the end of history was declared and Americans thought they had no problems overseas. Um, There was a very dramatic set of numbers on this in the CBS New York Times poll that was conducted this summer uh, at the time of the war in Lebanon. That poll repeated a question that was conducted by CBS in, in, in the summer of 2002. In that survey, the public, their, their respondents were split 46 to 48 percent as to whether the U.S. should take the lead in, sol- in solving global problems. By 2006, the vo- the, their respondents were voting against the United States taking a proactive position, taking the lead in dealing with global problems by a margin of 31 to 59 percent. Quite a reversal, very consistent with what we found. This particular poll, which was taken at the time of the war in Lebanon, found that just 33% of the people that they questioned thought it was the United States' responsibility to try to resolve that crisis. No fewer than 58% said the United, this was not the United States' business. We were back again. We are back again now where we were at uh, various points in modern history when the public wants to turn away from international affairs, but what's 
strikingly different about this time is we are under uh, the the public feels under great threat yet feels um, this uh, this this sense of, of wariness. Um, the shift, I think, reflects disillusionment, discouragement, and fatigue with the, with the war in Iraq. The war in Iraq has also led to a reversal of another opinion about how to deal with, uh, with terrorism. In 2002, by a 48 to 29 percent majority, the American public told us that uh, the best way of, uh, of um, dealing with the war on terrorism was by increasing America's military presence around the world. Now we have a margin in the poll that we, we repeated this, this month of 45 to 32 percent saying the best thing we can do is to decrease our presence around the world. We see the same uh, trend manifest with respect to specific measures. The poll that we conducted after the September 11th attacks in 2002 found a majority saying that they supported a 58% majority saying that he supported using military forces, military strikes against uh, country, uh, countries that were building nuclear facilities. Today, that number has shrunk to just 41%. In short, the war in Iraq has spent down much of the capital with, uh, uh, amongst the public for dealing militarily uh, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, the problem of terrorism. The only proactive measure uh, that gets more support now than we saw in 2002 was the percentage of Americans saying that it's uh, putting high priority on, on energy independence. Uh, that is a more prevalent, more popular view, but all of the military options uh, get far less support in this poll and just about every other poll I've seen. One of the other unfortunate consequences of of Iraq is it has divided us. Partisanship is now much more apparent in public attitudes toward the war on terrorism than it was when it than it was in much of two, all of two, the rest of 2001 and all of 2002. Uh, Republicans and Democrats differ widely on what the role of the United States should be uh, in the world and over the uh, over the potential use of force. Um, finally, uh, the one. Uh, murky, uh, hard-to-read uh, set of questions is how the public feels with respect to the trade-offs with uh, regard to civil liberties in dealing with the war on terrorism. Uh, most Americans continue to, to, believe, to say that they believe uh, they will have to make some sacrifices uh, in, with respect to civil liberties for the sake of the war on terrorism. That number is about 68 percent, almost as high as it was in, 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 right after the attacks. And most think that the Bush administration is, is um, striking the right balance between protecting uh, civil liberties and waging the war on terrorism. But the public is divided over the warrantless wiretaps. Uh, they are divided over holding prisoners in Guantanamo without trials. And there's a real partisan uh, div deep division about many of the specific uh, measures uh, with respect to civil liberty, with respect that, that, that threaten traditional American uh, civil liberties for the sake of the war on terrorism. There hasn't been much backlash, as far as I, I can see, uh, on, on this, because basically Americans are more concerned that the government is not doing enough to deal with the war, on, uh, to thwart the terrorist threat. Uh, that are concerned that they themselves are, are, their own civil liberties are being threatened. For the most part, 
Americans don't feel that the uh, the the, uh, the civil liberty squeeze really affects them. They don't feel threat, even though when confronted with these individual situations and individual issues, you do get a fair amount of division of opinion and a fair amount of opposition, as Dana pointed out, uh, to some of these programs. And I think I'll leave it there. Great. Thank you very much. Flint Leverett. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. It is a very much a pleasure to be on this um, on this panel. Um, Chris asked me to take a shot at looking at the question of how well we're doing at the war on terror, uh, not so much in terms of uh, popular standing, as Andy just talked about, um, but more in a strategic sense. And I think to state my conclusions up front, it's not even a close call for me. Five years after 9-11, the United States is losing the war on terror. Um, The Sunni Islamist terror threat, as Bob Pape, uh, particularly the threat of suicide terrorism, as Bob Pape demonstrated so persuasively in his remarks, has gotten worse since September 11 not better. In the course of fighting our war on terror, we have done significant damage to other foreign policy interests, particularly in the Middle East. Um, The President and his supporters like to make an argument that, well, America has to be safer. We haven't had an attack in the United States since September 11, and that must be because of our strategy of, as the President puts it, fighting them over there rather than waiting until they come here. I think Bob Pape's assessment of the Norwegian document demonstrated this is utter nonsense as an analysis of why there has not been a terrorist strike in the United States since September 11. I don't, I don't deny, acknowledge measures have been put in place that make it harder for terrorists to operate in the United States, and that's all to the good. But the most important reason why there hasn't been a terrorist strike since 9-11 is because the terrorists are pursuing a strategy in which striking at the American homeland um, is not a priority in the near to medium term. Jihadists have made a calculated strategic and tactical judgment that the best way for them to pursue their agenda in the near to medium term is by going after targets in theater and going after Uh, targets that will impact governments allied to the United States. And they will come back at us when they determine that they have stripped us of our allies and weakened our position sufficiently in the Middle East that we will be less capable of responding and they can do even more damage to us by attacking us here. Have no illusions about that. 
they haven't attacked us here because they've made a strategic calculation in the near to medium term that that doesn't serve their agenda, but also have no illusion that they will be back at us at some point when they determine that coming back at us is going to have maximum impact in terms of their ability to pursue their goals. If this record of tactical and strategic misjudgments and mistakes were not enough to make me despair, um, I'm even more disappointed in the seeming inability of Democrats on any kind of organized and sustained basis to mount a serious critique of the way that the administration has conducted the war on terror. Yes, Democrats will say, yeah, the Iraq war wasn't carried out very well, wasn't planned right for the post-conflict period, made a lot of stupid mistakes in doing it. Um, but only now are Democrats who supported the decision to go to war in Iraq, in some cases, willing to consider, well, maybe that was a mistake. And other parts of the administration's approach for fighting the war on terror, I think, have received very little sustained critique from Democrats or from others in the American body politic. And we have yet, I think, to have a serious national debate about what is our strategy for fighting the war on terror. And unless we get that right, we're going to keep losing the war on terror. I think that Bob Pape's work um, First of all, it is, it is a paradigm of social science that matters. Um, I think every graduate student in political science, international relations, should memorize his book. Um, I'm teaching at MIT this fall, and I've certainly assigned it to my students. But I also think every executive branch policymaker, every intelligence analyst, every member of Congress ought to be obliged to memorize that book. He, in his work, he lays out in very persuasive, very clear terms, I think a couple of strategically very important points. First, that Suicide terrorists, as much as we you know, despise their tactics and as much as we don't like them, in the end, they are not madmen. They are people using what, in their calculations, are instrumentally rational tactics to pursue a political agenda. They have what they perceive to be 
serious grievances. And their agenda is to get those grievances addressed. And they have made certain judgments about the tactics that are most likely to get democratic societies to do what the jihadists want them to do. The second point that I think flows from Bob's work is that unless, as part of the war on terror, we are prepared in some way to take that political agenda of the jihadists seriously and to address it in ways that are consistent with the broad range of American foreign policy and strategic interests, we are not going to stop suicide terrorism. We are not going to win the war on terror unless we do that. Our strategy since 9-11 has gone almost completely in a diametrically opposed direction, both in terms of the assessment that gives rise to the strategy and the strategy itself from the kind of strategy I think you'd follow if you took Bob Pape's work seriously. Um, I think at a tactical level, if I can couch it in those terms, the war on terror has been unfocused, We had a chance early on in Afghanistan to deal what I think would have been a fatal blow to al-Qaeda. There's been a lot of discussion about the failure to commit American troops at the Battle of Tora Bora in December of 2001. Even more striking to me, shortly after I took up my position at the White House in, in Um, at the beginning of 2002, there is a decision made to take out of Afghanistan the special forces elements and the CIA paramilitary cadres that were spearheading the campaign on the ground to round up al-Qaeda. These were guys with a unique skill set. You know, serious operational abilities combined with language skills in things like Arabic and Pashto. But if you were going to go to war in Iraq, in Iraq on a certain timetable, you had to pull these guys out of Afghanistan, give them time to reconstitute, and put them back in theater in time for them to do their work to prepare the battlefield in Iraq. And so in February 2002, the decision was made to pull these guys out of Afghanistan. That is why when that spring when snows melted, mountain passes became accessible, Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, and others were able to flee Afghanistan, take up sanctuary in Waziristan, in Pakistan. It's why another group of senior al-Qaeda figures was able to go the other direction into Iran. It's because we didn't have the right people on the ground to capture or kill them. It's that simple. Um... But I think beyond those kinds of tactical mistakes, we've also really been operating in the wrong strategic framework. Um, 
in the American Prospect cover story Chris was nice enough to plug, I make a point that, you know, more than 30 years ago, Henry Kissinger defined a paradigm for U.S. policy in the Middle East that it should aim at marginalizing radicals and empowering moderates. Well, in the five years since September 11, the Bush administration has turned Kissinger on his head. We have policy that has ended up empowering radicals and putting moderates under strain in the Middle East. Iraq is an important piece of that. Our decision to go in in the first place, the ham-handed way in which we've managed the occupation since then, all of that certainly contributes. But we've made other decisions, all in the name of fighting the war on terror, which have only made this worse. We have refused to pursue serious, strategically grounded diplomacy with state sponsors of terror like Iran and Syria, even though we've had ample opportunities and openings to do that during the last five years. We have refused to deal seriously with the Palestinian issue, even though we know that whether we like it or not, whether we think it's a rational position or not, this is the core political conflict in this part of the world. It is the, um, if I can use, borrow a phrase from Shibli Telhami, it is the prism of pain through which Arabs and Muslims look at us. And by taking these positions in the name of the war on terror, we've not only undermined our own interests in the region, we've also made Israel's security and standing in the region um, decline over the last five years. And then on top of that, the administration embraces the credo of democratization and transformational diplomacy in the region. Even though, as Bob points out, there isn't a shred of evidence to indicate that democratization in Arab countries, Muslim countries, does anything to reduce the incidence of terrorism or support for terrorism. And there's ample evidence from places like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, other places in the region, that by pushing too early for a resort to more open electoral processes, you are only going to empower people who are more anti-American and more supportive of radical Islamist agendas than incumbent regimes. I think it is very much in our interest as part of the war on terror and for a lot of other reasons to be pushing on things like economic reform in the Middle East 
I think it's very much in our interest to be pushing on uh, issues, broadly lump them together under human rights. But democratization in this context is not just not going to achieve anything, it's going to make things worse. So my summary judgment is that by any reasonable measure, level of threat, level of capabilities of radical jihadists out there to do us harm, our overall standing in the Middle East, which is, after all, ground zero for the war on terror, um, the degree of support for radical Islamist agendas, including suicide terrorism, all of those things, we're losing. And we will continue to lose unless we are prepared to rethink our strategy for this war and pursue policies that are rooted in an accurate assessment and understanding of on-the-ground reality. And as far as that goes, I think Bob Pape has made a magnificent contribution to our the possibility of a public debate on, this issues, on these issues, and I can only hope that more people will read him and take him seriously. Thank you. Thank you, Flint. Rand Beers. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. And uh, um, uh, Flint, I'm going to come at the same questions in a slightly different fashion, but uh, thank you for uh, uh, that wonderful uh, uh, presentation. Um, I'm going to ask four questions and then try to answer them, uh, uh, at least from my own perspective. Um, the first one uh, is a question that they're all questions that we hear today, but the first one is one that we've heard um, uh, recently, and that is, is international terrorism uh, the major threat of the 21st century, or is international terrorism the major threat that the United States uh, faces today? Um, my answer to that question, if we just take it as international terrorism, is no. It's not the major threat that we face today. What makes it a significant threat, what makes it something that we have to pay attention to, is if you marry that threat of terrorist bombs in places around the world with, one, weapons of mass destruction. And to some degree, you can say that an airplane filled with petroleum, with gasoline driven into a skyscraper in New York is an unconventional form of a weapon of mass destruction. But, but my, my point here is the mass casualty situation that a weapon of mass destruction can produce is what makes the terrorist threat uh, more significant and, and one that we need to pay attention to. The second one is if the terrorists can speak for a much broader segment of the world than their numbers, in fact, represent. Can they speak, therefore, for... Uh, the majority uh, of the Muslim world. If they have weapons of mass destruction and if they can speak for that large a segment of, uh, of the globe, then they represent 
uh, the most significant threat that we're going to face today. But having divided this up into those points, it becomes, I think, more clear what we need to be thinking about and what we need to be uh, focusing our attention on, which is preventing the weapons of mass destruction from falling into the hands uh, of terrorists and preventing the terrorists from an ability to speak uh, for broad segments uh, of the Islamic world, which means that while we may have to use force in some situations, the principal tools, the principal efforts are going to have to use uh, politics and diplomacy uh, and working with other people uh, around the world uh, rather than kicking in doors, and I don't mean to diminish their value, um, uh, by themselves. So I think that I, the, the point that I have to start with first is while it may be important to think about the military or the intelligence or the law enforcement aspect of this right. struggle, I think it is more important to think about the political aspects uh, of this struggle uh, and to make sure uh, that we're attending to them. That leads me to the second question, which uh, I think the answer to is obvious, but it hasn't always been the policy that we've pursued, and that is our friends and allies critical to this struggle. Uh, I, I have felt and continue to feel that that's the case. I felt on the day and week and month after um, 9-11, that something truly significant had happened when the United Nations and NATO and other international bodies and countries rallied to the support of the United States. The UN passed a resolution which for the first time in its history ignored a fight over what terrorism actually was in order to su express support uh, for the United States. We had in fact assembled and support the largest coalition that had ever focused on a single problem in the world. Unfortunately, that feeling of support, that degree of assistance uh, has sadly dissipated and sadly, I believe, uh, it is a result primarily of our entry into Iraq and uh, if not the mere fact of our entry, the way in which we chose uh, to enter Iraq uh, by uh, failing to assemble the kind of coalition that was available for the first Gulf War, by failing to ensure that we in fact had the legitimacy of the United Nations behind us and that we had uh, Arab uh, support uh, and participation. I think all of those factors together came together uh, uh, to undermine uh, that level of support uh, that we had. Uh, regardless of the mistakes that we made, and Flint is absolutely right in talking about what we didn't do in Afghanistan uh, when we had the opportunity to. Uh, now we find ourselves uh, in the Muslim world having very little traction uh, for other kinds of policies that we might wish to pursue. Uh, and we find ourselves without the broader base of international support that we had after 9-11 and that we have generally had as we have pursued uh, common objectives in the world uh, to undertake uh, some of the more difficult challenges and tasks uh, that we face uh, in the way ahead. 
um, our image, uh, as Andrew has indicated, uh, in the Muslim world and in the world at large has been diminished and, and may, at least in the Muslim world, be at the lowest level it's ever been uh, in history. At the very time we need others to stand with us in order to overcome the deficit position we found ourselves in uh, as a result uh, of where we are uh, in Iraq today. So it seems to me that if we are uh, uh, to uh, move forward, uh, we're going to have to find a way uh, to move forward together with others, together with others in a way that allows others to speak uh, loudly as well to overcome the reaction, particularly the reaction in the Muslim world uh, that we face. The third question is, uh, is democracy uh, the strategy uh, that we should be using to separate uh, or de delegitimize Osama bin Laden and his movement from the Muslim world? Um, I think Flynn has already spoken to this, but I just want to add a few other points, and that is, uh, while democracy may be a valuable tool and a valuable strategy, it's certainly not a silver bullet. And it is certainly not something that we can move precipitously uh, to support uh, when the most organized uh, and uh, uh, attuned forces in most of the Muslim world are religious forces with some fundamentalist relationship as they have provided social services, as they have overcome uh, the, the webs of corruption that uh, exist in many of the secular governments uh, that exist in the Muslim world today. So it seems to me that we need to be stepping back, not to walk away from democracy as an objective or a long-term goal, but to recognize that we're going to have to take some important steps uh, in uh, the interim like building more responsive uh, and stronger institutions both within governments uh, and within civil society, ensuring that corruption uh, uh, is at least reduced, if not uh, uh, eliminated, that education becomes uh, an opportunity uh, for uh, individuals uh, in these societies, that there is an economic opportunity as well, and that tolerance and human rights become a basis for public dialogue um, with some sensitivity toward the religious and cultural uh, sensitivities uh, uh, of, these, uh, of these countries uh, in, in appreciation today that the nationalist and secular, secular leaders of much of the uh, Muslim world are now viewed as failures uh, and that we are going to have to find a way uh, to transition, but a way in which that transition uh, doesn't end up uh, with uh, worse situations uh, coming about uh, than the situations we look to leave behind. The last question I want to ask uh, is uh, Iraq, the central front in the war on terrorism. In there, I, I simply say no, and I, I say so uh, with uh, all of the uh, conviction uh, of having watched this tragedy uh, unfold. It wasn't in the beginning Flint and I sat in the NSC. We read the intelligence. There was not a terrorist threat in Iraq. They had supported terrorism in the past, Palestinian terrorism. There was a fundamentalist group called Ansar al-Islam within Iraqi territory. It was in the Kurdish section. It was on the border with Iran. 
and there may have been some transits through Baghdad to get there, but they were a marriage of convenience for Saddam. They were the enemy of the secular Kurds, and therefore they were a group that Baghdad could at least tolerate. They weren't um, a particularly strong or, 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 or uh, international group. Uh, they were useful, but they were not the kind of relationship uh, that meant that Saddam was a terrorist threat. And we are not involved in a terrorist struggle with international terrorism in Iraq today. We are sitting on top of a sectarian civil war, and I don't know any other way to describe that situation. If you want to call it an insurgency, well, then it's an insurgency between Sunnis and a Shia-dominated government. International terrorists are there. They have been there. They have never been prominent in their numbers uh, in Iraq. They have used some tactics. But in asymmetric warfare of almost any form, Terrorism is a tactic that particularly the weaker side chooses to use. That does not necessarily point to this being the central front in the war against international terrorism. Does Iraq matter to the war on terrorism? I think the answer to that, however, is yes. I think Bob Pate pointed out the fact that our military presence there has some effect uh, on the ability of uh, terrorists in general uh, to recruit uh, and to propagandize uh, their message around the world. I think that it is certainly an opportunity uh, for uh, Americans and Westerners to be killed, whether it's by international terrorists or uh, by uh, the, the uh, adherence to the Civil War, uh, and that represents a propaganda opportunity. It represents a possibility for developing tactics and training for international terrorists. And it is true that our withdrawal, particularly our precipitous withdrawal from Iraq, would represent what would be declared at a minimum as a propaganda victory uh, on the part uh, of terrorists, which makes the challenge of the way ahead uh, in Iraq today uh, an enormous challenge in finding the balance uh, on how uh, to make it less of a problem for us in the war on terrorism and not more of a problem uh, for us in the war on terrorism. But we're here to talk about terrorism and not Iraq, so I'll stop there on that. Mm -hmm. And end, uh, finally, uh, with simply a point, uh, and that is that the message matters. We heard a speech uh, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, but recently, by the president in which he quoted from uh, bin Laden, from Zawari, from Ahmadinejad, and others about the... Uh, uh, messianic uh, missions that they had all uh, adopted for themselves and why those messages represented a uh, enduring challenge to the United States and to the Western world uh, if we uh, uh, were uh, to walk away from them and, and, and not deal with them. Um, I think uh, that there is a value uh, in talking about that, but I also have to say that this is an issue which cuts both ways. And what we say, just as what we do, will come back to haunt us if those words are as ill-chosen and misused as uh, the words uh, of uh, mission 
that bin Laden and Zawari and Ahmadinejad and others uh, have used uh, to rally their troops uh, for domestic purposes uh, when uh, we all know that speaking at home and speaking abroad uh, are the same thing these days uh, in a world in which message uh, is distributed at the speed of light uh, to everyone uh, around the world. Let me stop there and uh, look forward to the questions. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Uh, Bob, I have some questions. Do you want to, do you want to say anything else in addition to your presentation? or Because uh, I have some questions that may lead in that direction. I also want to give time for the, for the audience Q&A. Uh, sure. I'm glad to go right to questions. Oh, from okay. I, I had one question that's been in my mind, and, and a couple people have touched on it, but I think this is mainly for, for Andy Kohat and others may want to jump in. But you mentioned, Andy, that there's clearly disillusionment with Iraq and U.S. attitudes towards American foreign policy have clearly um, uh, declined or popularity of U.S. foreign policy declined, clearly tied to a, Iraq. It's, it's much harder than the American public was led to believe. It's much more costly. It's taken much longer. But is there also a rising sense that it's worse than just hard, but it's actually counterproductive in the sense that Flint and Bob in particular have, have pointed out? And the reason I ask this question is because among foreign policy theorists and IR theorists that this has actually been pretty well understood for some time, that that it was the possession of power that uh, that contributed to us being a target for, for terrorism. In fact, Bob Kagan in, in, in uh, Paradise and Power said specifically that in so many words, that it was our power that made us the target and sometimes often the only target of terrorism. Or a bit more colorfully, he compared us and the Europeans that we were the sheriff and the Europeans were the saloon keepers and outlaws shoot sheriffs, not saloon keepers, um, in a typically colorful fashion. Is that sense, again, a sense among foreign policy theorists, like, yes, this is a cost of uh, being the world's hegemon, but we must bear these costs, is, is the way that, that uh, Kagan put it forward. Is this filtering down to the public, do they understand the, the counterproductive nature or the potential for the exercise of power being, being counterproductive in the fight? I think they understand that, it, that Iraq is not working. I think that their sense of comfort that Iraq would make uh, the war on terrorism a success, uh, they're dis disabused of that notion. Uh, there would have never been support uh, for the war in Iraq, going to, into Iraq if we hadn't had the September 11th attacks. And if you will recall, even after we did not find weapons of mass destruction, there was no change of heart about Iraq. Iraq only changed when it was seen as not going well and not producing the desired effect. Uh, let, me, let me address this just a little bit further. Internationally, the issue of our policies are the real driver of discontent with the United States, but resentment and suspicion of our power is fed, feeds uh, on, uh, or, or this resentment of our policies complicates the resentment of our, uh, of our power and uh, suspicion about our power. There's an interplay between the two. It's not just policies and it's not just power, but the two play off each other. I'd like to address something that you said, and that is the question of whether, they're, whether the terrorist would speak for a broader constituency. There's a really complicated answer to that question. Over the past five years, we've been doing surveys in Muslim countries. And what we've found is that dislike, uh, if not hatred, of the United States uh, after Iraq and coincident with the war on terrorism has gone straight up. But support for terrorism has actually decreased in most places. 
Uh, it's decreased in places, notably, that have had their own bad experiences with terrorism. Pakistan, Jordan, Morocco, Indonesia, even Turkey. In those places, the support for terrorism is going down. So the two issues, dislike of the United States and support for ter terrorism, go on separate tracks. The problem with the decline in the support for terrorism is that support for terrorism remains so high in, in absolute terms in, uh, in, in Muslim countries and even among Muslim publics in Europe that the small numbers, the small residual numbers, for example, in, in Britain, I think the numbers that we had this spring was something like 8 or 9%, or maybe it was 10%, saying that they thought suicide bombing was, was justifiable. That's a half or a third of what we find in, in Muslim countries. But 10% of the British public saying that suicide bombing is justifiable or, or thinking that Osama bin Laden represents you know, the right way to do things. Uh, it's a very complicated issue when you get to this, this, this question about what is the impact uh, of, 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 suicide, of terrorism on, on public opinion in the Muslim world. Um, if I can, uh, I, I will entertain questions from the audience and then uh, may exercise my chair's prerogative to insert a question of my own. But. Uh, we have uh, until 12.15 today, and I would ask that you um, uh, wait for the microphone, uh, identify yourself, and please keep your question short. If it is uh, to a particular panelist, uh, please let us know, or otherwise uh, you can open it up. And I uh, will recognize, uh, uh, let's see, uh, in the back row there, right there. with the Minaret of Freedom Institute. My question is to uh, Professor Pape, and uh, let me preface it by saying, as a former physical scientist who went into the social scientists, I compliment <laughs> you as someone who deserves the word scientist added to his name. Uh, however, much as I liked your presentation, I uh, wanted to ask you on your proposal of what to do about it, namely the offshore balancing. You indicated that a, a critical element of its success will be alliances with uh, countries in the area. Um, is this going to be that easy to do, for example, vis-a-vis -vis Iraq? How is it possible to form an alliance with an Iraqi government without actually installing the Iraqi government we want to form the alliance with, given what's happened recently? Um, my view on one of the key problems we've had in building the Iraqi government is that we've boxed up the uh, building of the Iraqi army. The reason is not because we haven't thrown enough money at it. The reason is because precisely this idea we've had where we embedded our lieutenant colonels all the way through the brigade structure and the command structure of the Iraqi army, what this is doing is, is creating a contradiction in loyalties. So just imagine, if you would, if you're an Iraqi soldier, and what's happening in your unit is, yes, there are some Iraqi officers, but ultimately, who's directing that unit is an American lieutenant colonel or colonel. Well, who is the officer of your unit then loyal to? It's really not loyal to the Iraqi government. It's loyal to George Bush. In fact, we wouldn't have it any other way. We're not going to put our soldiers in there and have them be loyal to uh, the Iraqi government. So as a result, what's happened over the last few years, whether it's General Petraeus, who's one of the most fan, you know, uh, excellent officers we've, we've had uh, in the U.S. military, what, 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 whoever we've put in, and precisely because we've tried to build the Iraqi army this way, 
what we've what's happened is it's 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 we've been able to create a few brigades, um, but what's ultimately the case is we don't have reliable Iraqi troops that will fight for the Iraqi government. And so the fundamental fact is that what we need to do over the next year, and we should have done this a year ago, but this will take at least a year, is we need to actually transfer responsibility for the control of the Iraqi uh, army to the Iraqi government. Um, in the course of doing that, the American troops can play a very important role in Iraq, but it's not the role they're currently playing. The role that we've been playing by sitting in Anbar province is actually just simply creating more and more problems. What we should be doing, and actually um, General Casey is is starting to do this, is we should have been deploying our troops along the lines of contact of the three communities, much the way we did in Bosnia in the mid-1990s. You might remember that we had this enormous problem in Bosnia, many people saying, just can't be stopped, can't be stopped, ancient hatreds, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we finally got serious and we deployed our troops, NATO's troops, along the lines of contact of the three communities, this really had a rather substantially calming presence. And I don't mean to say that we could fully produce that in the case of Iraq, but if we would just simply concentrate our forces in Baghdad and Kirkuk to uh, keep at least a lid on the violence that's there, this in combination with letting the Iraqi army actually form under the Iraqi government would be uh, quite helpful over, say, a three or four year period. Thank you. Um, uh, down here, Mike. <clears throat> Mike Miazawa, I have a couple of questions. Mr. Pape, during your presentation, you did not talk about the Palestinian suicide bombing. And most of the people from the, the Middle East say the Israeli occupation is the root cause of all the attacks against the United States. And my question is, have you done any survey about this point? And if, if yes, what were your findings? Another question for Ms. Priest. Well, you, okay, Mike, hold on just a second. Let's let Bob answer that and then we you can ask the question to um, I'd be glad to talk for hours about this subject. Uh, yes, large parts of the book are devoted to this. Um, in fact, it's not simply the military presence of the IDF on the West Bank and Gaza, but if you wanted to get a picture of the trajectory of the violence from the first intifada all the way through to the second intifada, the best way to do that is simply to track the number of settlers going into the West Bank. You see, although Israel's had the West Bank since 1967, if you actually look, you year by year, and this is what I do in the book, at the number of settlers going into the West Bank. They don't begin to go in in large numbers until the mid to late 1980s, right at the point. In fact, if you see these these trajectories build up, you can see immediately that this is very likely to provoke um, uh, some resistance on the part of Palestinians. And then, if you just simply look at this graph, look at these the, the graphs of the settlers, you can also see why the Oslo Accords would at first offer seem to offer some hope, and then in fact quickly Palestinians might become disabused of this because after seven years of Oslo, the number of settlers doubles <laughs> in just seven years, from about 100,000 to 200,000. Well, you can see why you might not think Oslo is actually doing much good if, uh, if, if the number is doubling into that. And anyway, it could go on and on. But and Ms. Priest, uh, you, you withheld the names of five Eastern European countries where the CIA set up the uh, black sites. And many sources, including European Parliament, have uh, referred to the names of two countries, Romania and Poland. 
Could you tell us the names of the three other? Nice try. Uh, no. <laughs> and we never said five, we said several, but I'd like to tell you <laughs> But I'd like to tell you why. Because I as a journalist is one of the most uncomfortable uh, things and yet I agree with our decision not to do that. And we revisited it after the president made his speech. We had people in our newsroom saying, Well, well and to me I said, Well what? And this is the reason that Those countries all participate in other ways with the CIA and other intelligence areas that are not controversial. I don't think they would be controversial if they were known, and that are and that are very helpful. And um, when I, you know, discovered what some of them were, I was, you know, I thought, wow, that's really really interesting. And of course, as a journalist, my knee jerk reaction was, well, that's a positive. Thing. Let's just talk about it, and then when you or let me print it, and then when I thought for a second more about what that would mean, um, that would mean that some of those things would end, because um, and I've tried to figure out an analogy that wouldn't be controversial. So here's my analogy: if if uh, if during World War II, there, Hitler had a, a a driver who was Haitian. And he had. <laughs> I'm trying to be so neutral that no one can say, you know. Um, and was a trusted confidant because he went everywhere with him, and and he happened to uh, also be an agent of someone's, and um, and through there to us, and gave us valuable information. And someone wrote about the tight cooperation of the Haitians with the Americans. Don't you think Hitler would say? You know, ha have second thoughts now about about the Haitian who's his driver, and he never thought about it. So there are things that are happening that I again don't think are controversial, and that they're they're positive and they're giving, uh, they're making um, positive contributions to what we know about other countries and 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 how we can act against uh, suspected terrorists. That that even I, <laughs> the person who believes very strongly in disclosing as much as I can, can. Uh, Can definitely agree should not be publicized. Sir, right there. Uh, I'm a London parliamentarian, a defence spokesman for the Conservative Party, though I'm here in a personal capacity. I've read your book, Dr. Pape. I think it's outstanding, both in terms of the data it contains and in the clarity with which you put your case. What I'm concerned about is the conclusions for subsequent action that might be drawn from it, and I'm not entirely sure that you dealt fully enough or adequately enough with the first question that you were asked today. It may well be the case that suicide terrorism increases when there is foreign occupation. But sometimes there are burdens that have to be borne. If, for example, we drew the conclusion that had the IRA resorted to suicide terrorism, we should therefore have withdrawn from Northern Ireland, despite the wishes of the majority of the people in Northern Ireland, would that have been the correct conclusion? Now, what it seems to me you're saying is that you can have the best of both worlds. You can minimize the suicide terrorism by going offshore in the way you've described it. But are you sure that an offshore strategy will enable 
the United States to prevent the takeover of countries by fundamentalist or other extremist regimes that will be immensely harmful. Would, for example, such a strategy apply in Afghanistan? And is it really that the uh, Taliban and al-Qaeda simply want to liberate their own lands from occupation, or is it that they have wider ambitions for which driving out America is only the first step? Thank you. Um, well, you're quite right that I'm only getting an opportunity to develop parts of this, and so I guess maybe the best way is just to come right at Afghanistan. You have a lot of things to in your question, and if uh, uh, there's more, then perhaps someone else in the audience could pick it up. But in the case of Afghanistan, if the century, we first have to know what is our purpose in being in Afghanistan. Well, the original purpose was to get not to topple the Taliban. That was a lesser included. The original purpose was Al Qaeda, as we've heard from two different uh, people who were there, um, we deliberately put that aside. Now, perhaps there were good reasons to do that. Uh, myself, I'm quite skeptical. Uh, myself, I think the original purpose was a good purpose. Uh, I could explain why I still think that's a, at least a reasonably good purpose, even if it wouldn't fully end the threat. But um, the fact is, I don't think we're doing we're having that discussion right now. What I think we're dis we're discussing is whether or not um, we should be propping up Karzai um, uh, because if he were to fall, this would look awfully embarrassing since we invited him to a State of the Union. <laughs> um, and I think that if that's really the purpose, um, that's a secondary purpose, and it should be one that we work directly with the Pashtuns. If we look at what's threatening Karzai, it's not it, it is on the surface suicide attacks that are coming at the government and Western forces. But underneath that is support by the ISI um, and through the Pashtuns um, for um, undermining Karzai's government. Well, if we want to think about this seriously, then I think I would just simply suggest what we do is we work directly with the Pashtuns um, in um, uh, sort of a more direct fashion. And if, in fact, that leads to a new leader coming into Kabul that is more um, sort of, we should say, convenient for the Pashtuns, then perhaps we support that. But what we should be doing, as in the case of Iraq, what we in Iraq, we do need to work with the Shia. They're the central power in Iraq. Uh, doesn't mean we give them anything they want, but we do have to work with them. In the case of Afghanistan, we should be working directly with the Pashtuns, and um, uh, I don't see us really doing that at the moment. I, in fact, if you look at the most recent information coming out of Afghanistan, we're losing support from the Pashtun population rather dramatically over the last few months. Flint or Randy, do you have anything to add to that? No. no. Okay. Uh, that's also a, that's a fair fair response. Uh, down here, and then we'll get some folks in the back. Right, right here. My question is to Flint. You spoke about a policy of enhancing moderates and weakening radicals. What policy should the U.S. adopt to empower moderates, destroy the radicals, and also enhance free market forces? so you can create wealth and prosperity. Okay, thank you. That's a, <laughs> man, I almost minutes. plant that question. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I think in order to recover the U.S. position in the Middle East and in the war on terror, we have to do a set of things. Um, in terms of Iraq, I think... 
um, Randy is exactly right. We are already in a situation of communal civil war in Iraq. And at this point, our options are either to continue down a, um, a feckless and counterproductive course, which could end up with Iraq looking more or less like Somalia, but with a lot more strategic uh, consequences. Or you essentially try to bring about some kind of power-sharing arrangement among the different communal groups, try and encourage consolidation of authority within the major communal groups and then work to effect some kind of power-sharing arrangement so that maybe in the end Iraq could end up looking sort of like Bosnia. Um, Those are your options right now. And if you're going to go for the Bosnia option, it means you're going to have to engage um, other states, especially Iraq's neighbors, um, who have various kinds of ties and influence with the different communal groups um, in the process of brokering those power-sharing arrangements. Um, And this administration has uh, basically not been willing to consider um, a serious regional strategy for trying to to manage Iraq and contain the um, the contain the negative consequences from what is basically our strategic failure there. Um, I think that's one thing we have to undertake. Secondly, I think we have to um, get serious about uh, diplomatic engagement with both Iran and Syria. Um, I think Syria is eager for uh, an improved strategic relationship with the United States. Um, I think that uh, this is something that we could do fairly readily and make real strategic gains by doing it, but we would have to be prepared to spell out for the Syrians if they were to become more cooperative, what are the strategic benefits they would get from us? And this is something that, again, the administration has, has as a matter of policy, declined to do. And I think we, it's time to get serious about that. On Iran, we've seen a tactical shift in policy. We're now sort of willing, under the right conditions, to sit in multilateral talks on Iran's nuclear activities. But even if we manage to get into those talks, you know, that's not going to solve the bigger strategic problem with Iran. Um, I've written extensively elsewhere why I think this, but, you know, the bottom line is I think unless we're prepared to do a grand bargain with Iran and prepared to try and resolve all the outstanding bilateral differences between um, the United States and the Islamic Republic in a package, we're not going to get anywhere there, and I think it's time to do it. We had the chance to start doing it three years ago when Iran wasn't enriching uranium or spending centrifuges. Um, The price of doing it is only going to get higher the longer we delay it. Um, Another thing we need to do is uh, get serious about the Palestinian issue. I think it's time to um, lay out um, an American vision for final status, parameters for resolving the key final status issues in ways that would meet the minimum needs of both sides. I don't think the intellectual content of those parameters is any is any mystery. Um, but we have been unwilling to do that, um, basically because I think in the end the most powerful players in this administration don't believe in those parameters and think that they can somehow push this issue off far enough that 
you won't have to, you'll get a Palestinian leadership that at some point is prepared to accept um, less than what was on the table at Taba. Um, and I don't think that's going to happen. And the longer we delay getting on the right side of that issue, um, the further damage it's going to do to our position. Um, I think we also have to t take seriously the um, Saudi peace initiative that the Arab League endorsed and, and you know, aim not just at a two-state solution to the Palestinian conflict, but, you know, have an agenda that aims at comprehensive Arab-Israeli peace, building on um, the Saudi peace initiative. Um, I've already said why I think democratization is a bad idea, and I think we really ought to, you know, drop that as a focus pay attention to economic reform, pay attention to human rights. Um, you know, don't worry about um, elections in most of these countries anytime soon. Um, and then I think we it's long overdue for this strategically critical part of the world that we um, start to develop a regional security framework, a kind of OSCE-like mechanism for the Middle East um, involving all of the um, regional states, including those that we don't like particularly well, and um, including us along with other major external players. Um, at this point, I think it'd probably be important to include um, China, uh, for example, as part of a regional security framework, um, along with traditional interpar international partners like the Europeans. That's kind of the agenda I would lay out for um, you know, trying to recover the American position in the Middle East and the and the war on the war on terror. Could I just add? Please go a ahead. Couple of things. Um, the, the the only two things that I would add, and I agree with with, with what Flint said. Um, the Arab Human Development Report talked about the value of education in the in the Muslim world, and I think that that's true. But if you only do the education part, you'll still end up with the problem. And Flint said economic opportunity is got to go hand in hand with that. But the second thing that has to go hand in hand with that is the combination of strengthening institutions and dealing with the corruption issue. And that can only come as an international process. It's certainly not something we can direct and, and, and offer as, as our gold-coated solution uh, to these problems. It has to be something along the lines of the International Corruption on Convention, which sets some parameters on how to deal with corruption on a global basis and a way in which to approach all governments on issues such as these in order to allow the real economic opportunity to have an opportunity uh, to move forward. Okay. I want to get a few people in the back, and if I have time, I'll get back to the front. Uh, but... Um there was a hand in the in the way back there. Go ahead, right there. I am Richard Youngflesh from the uh, Northern Virginia Community College. Uh, I've heard reports now that the uh, uh, international uh, international terrorist threat is much less centrally directed than we thought. That Al Qaeda uh, has these kind of uh, cells that don't take direction or necessarily take direction from that. Uh, the incident in New York City where they uh, they thwarted some threat and they had the tip off from the Islamic community within the city itself. So it's much more of a uh, uh, policing action than we originally thought as well. Would you agree with that, that we should put more emphasis on the policing part of it rather than the military? Uh, well, let me break, 
your yeah, question go ahead. into two parts. Um, first, this whole issue, um, which has really actually been something, by the way, I've seen in Washington, which is this, uh, is Al-Qaeda hierarchical or is it decentralized? Um, I think that this is actually kind of missing what um, Al-Qaeda is. I think that if you thought Al-Qaeda was a religious cult, this would be a perfectly reasonable way to think about it. Um, however, uh, from the beginning, Al-Qaeda has really been a movement. It's been a broad movement. It's been a movement, um, and I'll just use an analogy. Uh, it's not exactly like it, but if you think of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, there's Martin Luther King with peace marches, there's Malcolm X, there's the Black Panthers, there's the Weathermen. Now, some of this movement is hierarchical, but Malcolm X, <laughs> well, Martin Luther King is not directing Malcolm X, much less the Black Panthers. So um, there's quite a bit of this movement, which is, in fact, just simply coherent around an idea, not an individual person. That's very much what's happening with Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is a movement that is in strong opposition to the presence of Western combat forces uh, on the Arabian Peninsula, and then secondarily in other Muslim countries, and then I would say thirdly, also um, uh, sort of uh, power behind the throne, American foreign policy behind the throne, supporting uh, repressive regimes. That um, manifests itself in the actual attacks um, in a couple of ways. First of all, um, what we see is that some attacks are actually quite um, – there's a lot of lines of communication between al-Qaeda and uh, the attackers. We could, I could trace out for you the leader-to-leader, al-Qaeda-to-JI links, for instance, in the Indonesia attacks in great detail, also the money flows. Um, I could also um, compare for you something that's not typically compared, which are the connections, the way the operation on 9-11 was assembled compared to the way the 7-7 July bombers in London were assembled. Um, they're often described as very different. Um, well, that made sense when we knew less about the 7-7 <laughs> plot and how it was put together. You see, the 7-7 attackers, two of them, much the way uh, Ada did, Ada went to meet Osama, much the way several of the 7-7 attackers went to Pakistan, and we now really quite assume to go and meet directly with, if not Osama and al-Zawahari, at least some al-Qaeda leaders. And then um, when... Um, uh, Ada came and actually ran his operation uh, in the United States. Um, he had some contact with Osama. There were several phone calls uh, um, that we now have uh, at least released in the 9-11 report between Ada and Osama occurring over the summer of 2001, which, by the way, are quite similar to the phone calls that were made between the 7-7 bombers uh, and Pakistan both two weeks before the 7-7 bombing and several months before. So what does that add up to? That adds up to me that um, most of al-Qaeda's attacks, there are some uh, connections directly with the attackers and the leaders. Uh, many there are not, um, but the fact is that we should be expecting this kind of variation within a movement where it, what's holding this together is not fighting for a man, Osama, it's fighting for an idea. Thank you. There was another uh, questioner right there. Yes.
amongst the U.S. allies do you expect such an attack to take place? What would your guess be? And the yeah. second part of the question is, um, you look at suicide bombings at places where there has been military occupation and how the terrorists have emanated from these places, especially suicide attacks. But what about the places where there has been occupation for long periods of time, especially in the Pacific theater like yeah. Japan yeah. and yeah. Korea? And there has been no suicide terrorism yep. there. And there is a lot of resentment against U.S. occupation, yep. but still, it hasn't happened. So how would you explain that? And lastly, uh, that, uh, 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 That's good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, the second question actually consumes about 100 pages of the book. So <laughs> there's, uh, there's a whole set of secondary causes. Um, some of them are quite interesting. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the key issue, why some occupations escalate to suicide terrorism and not others over the last 20 years, uh, is that there's the, the main secondary enabling factor has been a religious difference between the foreign um, occupying forces and the local community. Even though, I don't mean that some religions do this and not others. I mean that when you have a religious difference... Um, even in purely secular conflicts, like such as in Sri Lanka, where the Tamils are Hindus and the Sinhalese are Buddhists, when there's a religious difference, this enables the terrorist leader to paint the occupier as driven by a religious agenda. Um, and that can scare the bejesus out of members of the local community who are both religious and secular. Because even if you're secular and you're not part of your own religion, well, that doesn't mean you want to be part of the occupier's uh, agenda, so to speak. This is why the idea of the crusader image plays such a big role in al-Qaeda's uh, 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 recruitment messages. You only saw a few words of it in, by Adam Gadon, but if you see, saw Osama's speeches, you would see he talks a lot about religion. He's talking about religion in the context of what's motivating the American occupation of the Arabian Peninsula as being driven by a religious that is a crusader, that is a Christian agenda to convert Muslims, damage Islam, or help Israel expand so that Christians and Jews together can more easily or hold on to Jerusalem for a longer period of time. So anyway, there's just a short precy, about 100 pages that's uh, in the book, and there's a lot of attention paid uh, directly to that. In terms of your first question, um, I'm not trying to pretend that, the, the, that my theory can give you point predictions. Um, however, um, it is important to pay attention to simply what al-Qaeda's pattern and trajectory of attacks tells us. The fact that Osama has took us off the list, so to speak, for several years, and now is deliberately um, calling on uh, attacks directly against Americans. Um, and if you look at the, well, um, this is really quite worrisome. So I think I'm much more concerned about an attack um, in the short term and medium term in the United States. And by the way, that this talk I gave, um, I was uh, giving it to the most senior levels of the FBI, the heads of the national field offices, sitting in a room just like you, who had come together at West Point for a special meeting, about 80 of them, um, uh, from all different parts of the country, um, the day before, August 9th, the day before the August 10th plot <laughs> was, uh, was announced, and I was specifically give, you know, concerned that, that something like that might, uh, might appear. So there's more to say on that regard, but um, I don't mean to, I can, we, we can say some, the strategic trajectory of the attacks, but not really make point predictions. Uh, Dana had a question. Well, I can't help it because uh, this is what I usually do. But you, you know, 
<laughs> and I'm sure so it's going to be a good. <laughs> you were um, you eloquently stated that. Uh, what's holding this together is fighting for uh, a movement, not a man. So, uh, give me your assessment of how important it is to to, yep. to capture UBL, and what yep. will it matter? Um, it doesn't. I don't think it matters because UBL is inspirational. Although he is quite an inspirational figure, he's sort of the Bill Clinton of Al Qaeda. I mean, he's really <laughs> <laughs> uh, he really is. Don't, don't quote him on uh, that. Well, uh, um, he really is. He really is an inspirational figure. But but the fact of the matter is, um, as we saw with Zarqawi, um, Zarqawi went from being somebody nobody knew the name of to suddenly everybody knew the name of simply with the American invasion of Iraq. So this can be, an inspirational figure can be created when necessary. The reason Osama is worrisome is simply because of his skill. One of the things that's quite worrisome, when you read the Norwegian document, I've spent, before doing terrorism, I spent 15 years doing air power. And what air power is all about is coercion. I didn't. I wasn't teaching people in the Air Force how to put bomb on a target. It was all about arguments about what would coerce, not coerce, what would be counterproductive. One of the things that's very worrisome about Osama is just how seriously uh, these documents take into account the possibility of backlash. The possi- they're, they're really quite sophisticated. Um, and um, Osama has now been at this over 20 years, and um, he hasn't yet shot himself in the foot. Now, if you think about Milosevic, it didn't take Milosevic very long to shoot himself in the foot. If you look at um, <laughs> Saddam, Saddam has actually shot himself in the foot multiple times, helping us out in ways, countless numbers of ways. Um, I'm afraid the, the real issue here with, Os- with Osama and al-Zahari is not so much their inspirational value, which is, of course, you know, <coughs> salient. I don't mean to undermine it completely, but the fact is they're simply better they're simply good adversaries, and it'd be nice to have out of the way. Zarqawi is more the kind of guy we'd like to have. He'll, you know, where somebody would, you know, be popular for a year or two, eventually overstep and get turned in by his own people. <laughs> well, that's what we we'd like to be up against the Zarqawis of the world, not Osama and El Zahari, uh, who are just simply uh, uh, better than the average opponent we've been up against. So finding them is still. Uh, an important issue for you. I think it would be very, I think it would be, it's a useful medium term simply because it takes away some of the best operational commanders Al Qaeda has. This is a bit like looking at the operational skills of our American military. I mean, we have some excellent operational commanders, and we should just recognize that they're really valuable um, in these operations. And in Al Qaeda's operations, their purpose is not to die, it's to kill, to kill large numbers of people. So there's a fair bit of operational um, substance here that we would like to undermine. We only have a little bit of time. Flint, Flint or Randy, do you want to weigh in on that as well? What, what do you think about how important is it to capture uh, Osama? Um, first of all, I think the key point is it's both of them. Right. We don't know which one of them is the real I agree. Bin Laden. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. because we don't, it's, it's both of them. Secondly, there will be in any case, and this is one of the beauties of their operation, there will be a downside even if they are captured or killed because they will then become even greater myths in death than they will be lot. And so we are going to have to accept that. But I would still go with where Bob left it, which is we're better off with their operational skills being taken, their propaganda skills being taken off the table than leaving them out there. 
All right. Well, with that, I got I have to wrap things up. I, I want to uh, again thank the panelists for a, a, a terrific discussion today. Very important on a very important subject. I want to thank all of you for coming out. Uh, we had some uh, competition today, and yet we still managed to fill the room, and I appreciate that very much. And uh, and please uh, join me in giving a round of applause to our panelists who uh, took some time out of their busy day. Thank you.